0: This morning we'll be continuing in our study of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we begin. Father, these truths are so out of our league. the reality that you have chosen us and that we therefore belong to you forever is overwhelming. So would you use this time to cement these truths deep within us And I pray that you would protect us against just hearing these truths week after week as we walk through this opening section and just heading home and coming back the next week. Lord, I pray that you would do a miracle in us and among us this morning. We commit our time to you, Father. Spirit, we ask you to lead us. In the name of the Son, I ask it, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So imagine what this would have looked like in real time. The simplicity and the beauty and the power Jesus was once teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there happened to be a woman there who had been suffering from a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and not able to fully straighten herself. The gospel writer Luke tells us that when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. I wonder if this morning you might be struggling, in some manner spiritually disabled, as you sit here. Maybe you've been walking with God for 18 years or more, but it's always been kind of just hunched over, unable to really straighten up and receive and enjoy the fullness of all that God has done for you in Christ. Is there some area of your thinking or of your life that that Jesus may need to transform in order for you to walk upright and glorify God as our sister did? The reason I'm asking is because I believe Jesus can use Paul's words from our passage this morning to change you today. Do you believe, do you believe that change is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk through God's word this morning Do you believe that it is possible for you to walk with more freedom and more fidelity and more passion and more joy? What would need to happen? What would need to be true in order for that to happen? I think the answer to that question begins at least in part, with believing that the truth that Paul describes in today's verses is, in fact, true. And by true, I don't just mean that you think that it's theologically accurate. I mean, taking the time to drive a spiritual stake into the ground and trusting that the Father Himself loves you. I mean knowing at the core of your being that the Son Himself has redeemed you. And I mean rejoicing with full-throated praise that the Holy Spirit Himself ensures we will receive the full blessing of all the Father has planned and all the Son has accomplished for us to the praise of His glorious grace. The truth of today's passage possesses nothing less than life-changing power. Therefore, May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened this morning, that we may know, that we may know what is the hope to which He has called us, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let's read through verse 3 down to 14 so we can see where they fall in this glorious praise that Paul offers as he begins this letter. Hear the word of our glorious God. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Lord, would You help us to understand and to believe to believe deep down within us that these truths are not just true generally, but that they are true for us personally, that is, for those of us who believe in Jesus. And I ask that you would do that in His name. Amen. So, perhaps, perhaps counterintuitively, this morning I want to do three things. First, I want to I want to think about the concept of biblical or divine adoption or just the concept of adoption itself in our lives in order to adjust any altered or skewed views we may have about what it actually is so first i want to talk about it in our lives then in order to actually recalibrate our thinking i want to look at what the bible says specifically about divine Adoption, And then finally, if those things are clear, our passage is going to be simple. And we'll be able to just describe the essence of what Paul is saying here in verses 5 and 6 and the very end of verse 4. So, let's begin then by thinking through the concept of of adoption and where it intersects our lives. It is almost impossible to overestimate the importance of the truth described in verses 5 and 6. The great Puritan Richard Sibbs said of the biblical concept of adoption that all things are ours by virtue of adoption because we are Christ's and Christ is God's all things are ours by virtue of adoption on a first hearing it seems like Sibs has got to be exaggerating but what's the first thing that you you think of when you when you hear when you hear the word adoption. And perhaps first we think of maybe a child in a difficult situation who is taken in by a family to experience the blessing of what it means to have security and love and the stability, the stability that allows, especially a young child, to flourish. By God's grace, that's the story of multiple families here at River Oaks. And that's wonderful, and that's powerful, and it's it's life transforming when that happens. But to put it in kind of bracing terms, as beautiful and as biblical as human adoption is it would simply be wrong to begin with that image in our minds and be satisfied to say, divine adoption is like that, only better. Rather, the place to begin this morning is to attempt to grasp the concept of divine adoption and let that inform the way we think of all of life, including the particular... Beauty, the particular reality of human adoption. In the same way that we would not want to begin with human marriage and then infer our understanding of the relationship that Jesus must have with the church based on that, we should not begin with human adoption and just think about how God's adoption of us must be very, very similar, although there certainly are some parallels. Now, if you ask me what single book outside of the Bible has had the most profound impact on my thinking and therefore my life, I think that book would be Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I read it when I was a new believer more than 25 years ago. Sometimes impact of books has to do with kind of where you are in life. I was a brand new believer, and I was looking for something to soak in. And Dr. Packer provided it. Now, if you ask me what chapter of that book had the most profound impact on my thinking, and therefore my life, I would say, without question... The chapter titled, Sons of God, where Packer discusses the idea of divine adoption. He opens that chapter with these words, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is one who has God as Father. A little later he wrote, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is is the Christian name for God. Now, so many of the things that Jesus taught have just become familiar to us. Praise God, by by His grace, that's true. But it makes it difficult to understand how, how profound it was for Jesus to teach us to pray with these words... When you pray, say, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God as our majestic and merciful Father is the place Jesus wants us to begin. When we think about our lives and when we think about life in this world, The idea that God is our Father informs the way we view everything according to Jesus. We want His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because we love Him. And we want Him to be honored. And we ask Him to provide for all of our needs, including our daily bread. But what if sadness and and not singing wells up within you when you consider the fatherhood of God? Then what? Let's let the reality of the gospel itself help us here. A key distinction between human adoption and divine adoption is that in divine adoption, we actually come to a mediator. And then we become sons in the Son. Jesus, the true and perfect Son of God, bore our imperfect way of relating with the Father onto himself at Calvary and substituted in its place for us his perfect relationship with his heavenly Father. So any wrath that we Deserved has turned to favor. And not just like God kind of likes us a little more than he did before Jesus went to the cross. Once his enemies, we have now become his children. Therefore, We can be fully confident in the love the Father has for us. So right at this very moment, let's let the redeeming work of the Son begin to fully reframe any of the fragmented views that we have of fatherhood that might cause us to fear or cause us to just feel frustrated all of the time. The beauty of divine adoption in the Bible helps us to see the fullness of the Father's loving heart toward us. Now, as we look more specifically at divine adoption in the Bible, there are five instances where the Bible speaks specifically of our adoption. Galatians 4.5, which is kind of in the center of the passage that we read for the call to worship this morning, uh, Romans 8.15, Romans 8.23, Romans 9.4, and then our passage from Ephesians 1. Hear the call to worship again, and it is a call to worship God to the praise of His glorious grace. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption, there it is, as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I'm not making that up just because it sounds like it'd be awesome. The Apostle Paul wrote that in Galatians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this is the truth that I was just talking about. We have come to the Son to become a Son. Our adoption is made possible by our redemption. And once we are adopted... We become an heir of God in Christ for ever. Now, if you look at a list of the hundred or even the the 25 or so richest people on the planet, you will see many people who are so-called self-made billionaires in this case, But one of the things that you will also see on that list is that it includes many heirs and many heiresses, perhaps most notably, somewhat near the top, uh, all of the relatives of Sam Walton who founded Walmart. What you won't see if you look at that list is an asterisk by their name saying their wealth that is the heirs and the heiresses, isn't valued at the same amount as the one who initially earned it. The inheritance of the heirs and heiresses is valued exactly, it's valued exactly the same as the one who earned it. Perhaps minus a few capital gains taxes. But the value is the same as the one who earned it and so it is with Christ. Having been redeemed by Christ, we are adopted in Christ and now become heirs with Christ. This is the reality of the gospel. And one of the reasons many people consider adoption, even over justification, the highest privilege afforded to us in the gospel Perhaps justification is the most fundamental and primary blessing of the gospel, but adoption is its highest privilege. In Romans 8, and verse 15, there is blessed hope for those who, who struggle to call out to God as Father, because here we learn that the ability to do so is actually a work that the Spirit does in us. The beauty and the power of the Trinity is on full display in adoption. We become adopted sons of the Father in the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us through that whole process. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive, listen carefully with me, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So notice that it is not a spirit of fear that leads to slavery. Rather, it is a misunderstanding of our identity that leads to fear. But let this truth reshape your thinking. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba. Father, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now, as men and as women, the biblical teaching is that we both become sons in the Son through the Spirit. Okay, this isn't some kind of weird fluidity thing, right? Okay, so far from this concept being demeaning to women, it means in the first century, that both the men and the women are given the first century inheritance status of a firstborn son. Absolutely unheard of until Jesus. All who are redeemed by Christ become full-blown heirs in Christ. It doesn't matter where you're from before you met Christ. It doesn't matter what you did Before you met Christ, it doesn't matter what role you had while serving Christ. It doesn't matter how long you served and loved Jesus Christ. We all receive the full inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us to see that we are, in fact, adopted children of a perfectly loving father, not slaves of a harsh taskmaster, so, so there is, in fact, no reason to fear. Freedom, not fear, is the reality for those who have been adopted by the most loving father conceivable. In Romans eight twenty three we see that the reality of divine adoption actually possesses an already not yet dynamic. We're looking at each instance in the New Testament so that it fills in our picture of what adoption actually is. Romans 8.23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, isn't that a fascinating passage. In other words, much like the kingdom of God, which truly has come in the person of Jesus Christ, but will not be fully consummated until he returns, so too we have already been seated in the heavenly realm with Christ. Verse 3 But the full inheritance that awaits us will not be completely realized until the resurrection from the dead because that's when we will experience the total redemption of our bodies so we can glorify God without fear and without failing bodies. Won't that be a glorious day? As wonderful as it is to be led by the Spirit now, as we experience genuine and real fellowship with God by faith. Imagine for a moment what it will be like to fellowship with God and to worship God and to serve God body and soul in bodies not corrupted by the fall. No inclination to sin. Hearts that only fully want to love and honor and enjoy being in the presence of God forever. Until uh, uh, we get there. Let's keep going. Now, Romans 9.4 and following. It's a little bit technical, but it's really important. I'm just going to summarize this section. Paul is talking here. We've read some of it over the last few weeks, Romans 9. Paul's talking about how heartbreaking it is to him that many Israelites have not recognized Jesus as the Messiah. That is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, including adoption. So we're talking about Old Testament Israel at this point. What we learn here in Romans 9.4 and this description of adoption is that even the Old Testament, Old Covenant adoption of Israel, finds its future fulfillment in the resurrected Son of God, which is what sets the table for Ephesians 1 and opens the door for both Jews and Gentiles to be adopted into the same family. In fact, we saw some of that distinction breakdown in the passage that Kim read for us from Romans Now, all of these various aspects of adoption, I wanted to include so that we could deconstruct any false views that we had of adoption and then rebuild it, or at least recalibrate, our understanding of divine adoption in a fuller way. Therefore, from the curse brought upon the earth through the first Adam to the redemption from the curse by the true offspring of Abraham. The solution comes in Christ and is realized for believers through divine adoption. That's amazing. Or from the abandonment of God by Israel to the grafting in of the Gentiles with true Israel, the reconciliation comes in Christ and is realized for believers in divine adoption ultimately or from the plan of eternity past to the future inheritance of all believers forever everything is accomplished in Christ and ultimately benefits believers through the miracle of divine adoption in other words just think about how massive those themes are that i just articulated And ultimately, they find their culmination in adoption for those who put their faith in the Son. How does that fill out your view of the implications of divine adoption for us and for the world? Therefore, with all of that as background, as promised, our understanding of Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 can be pretty straightforward and simple. Far more than merely a loving disposition toward us, and I don't mean to minimize that, (laughs) as glorious as that truly is, that the Father has a loving disposition towards us, an argument can be made that the consummation of our adoption is the purpose for which the Father brought forth the reality of redemption through the blood of Jesus and the new covenant filling of the Holy Spirit forever. In other words, all of these truths and themes and promises are finding their apex for us ultimately in adoption. The reason we spent the whole time last week on the fatherhood of God was simply so that we can now grasp the thrust of Paul's words here. In love, he. In love, he, that is the Father. Predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because here in Ephesians 1, Paul is offering a summary of what God has done for us in adoption, we catch a glimpse of the fullness of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will yet do. Now for those of us who are fathers... As we look at this passage and we see that in love, He predestined us for adoption. Consider, when did you start loving or when did you start lovingly planning to do good for your child or your children? Was it the day that you met them in the hospital? And you thought, boy, it would be good to love this thing. This seems like a big deal. I should probably start thinking about what that's going to look like. There is no way. <clears throat> you, you loved that child before you ever met that child face to face. In love, as imperfect fathers, as semi potent, semi Okay, I'm making those words up, but you get the idea. As finite, as fallible fathers. We start planning to do good to our children because we love them before they're born. How much more real words coming? How much more our omnipotent, omniscient, infinite, infallible Father in heaven, how much more has he planned to do good to those he sets his affection upon? The thrust of verses 5 and 6 is that because of his perfectly pure and relentlessly pursuing love, the Father, as simply as I can put it, planned to love us. Because He loves us. Before He created anything else. Which means, if there was only God, that means the Father and the Son. And the Spirit agreed together to act according to their plan. That is the Father's plan to do good for us. And what do you know? That's how it played out. So that we would eventually worship God with amazement at his gracious love. It's to the praise of his glorious grace He's put his gracious love on display for all of heaven and all of earth to see in the redemption and the adoption of his children. This blessing of fatherly love has come to us in his son, the beloved one. Therefore, what does the father want you to know? Why would the Spirit inspire Paul to write this? The Father wants you to know with 100% assurance that in His beloved Son, you are now fully beloved forever. And if He planned on loving you since before He made you, that isn't going to change in Eternity. This is a plan from all time and it is a plan for all time that the Father would set His affection on you. So let us let the Holy Spirit cement these truths deep within our hearts because this is the kind of love that can change your reality as you sit here this morning. And this is the kind of love that can set your heart on fire. So do you see? Do you see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And incredibly, Miraculously, in Christ, so we are. Let's pray. Father, would you overwhelm our hearts with your love? Whether our our hearts are like brittle sponges right now, or whether they are beginning to be saturated with your love and are just starting to drip. Lord, I pray that the Spirit would ring them out in worship right now. Father, help us to consider the incredible reality of what you plan to do, what you are doing, and what you will do. For we stand back amazed at Jesus Christ, who is our only hope, and Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. His name we praise, and it's in his name we pray, amen.